For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. A former House Speaker Chris Steele and his criminal justice reform organization is asking for the expedited release of prisoners to stem the spread of COVID-19. They sent a letter to Governor Stitt and the Department of Corrections following news of four inmates dying after they tested positive for the disease. Neva, what are some of the things they're requesting here? Well, a, a number of things. I mean, they they would like uh, the expedited signing of any pend- pending uh Senate's commutations that have been approved by the Pardon and Parole Board. Uh, they talked about, uh, you know, if offenders had one or more chronic underlying health conditions or those over 55 to be screened uh, deter- to be determined if they might be have eligibility for medical parole. I mean, the the list the list mm-hmm. was uh, uh, a number of things, but I think the takeaway is the fact that there's not been really uh, any any. Uh, uh, discussion by the governor's office or a department of corrections director uh, uh, in terms of responding to this. And I think when you look at the uh, look at what they're asking for versus the issues, it, it would appear that you've got uh, uh, out of 39 or so facilities uh, across the state, you've got two where they've had some, uh, uh, sig- uh, some significant issues. And I think those are ones where everyone would probably concur need to be addressed in terms of uh, doing additional measures uh, to make, uh, make the facility safer and to be able to address the medical concerns. But in terms of just opening the door to all of the requests that we're Uh, that were enumerated by the uh, criminal justice group, it appears that that's not going to get uh, very much attention, at least it hasn't thus far. Ryan. Well, this is one of the biggest failures of the state of Oklahoma in response uh, to the COVID pandemic. And we have uh, seen from day one that jails and prisons were going to be uh, potential for hotspots where we could have widespread outbreaks and that the people that are there, both correctional officers and the inmates, are at a heightened risk for exposure. And as Chris Steele, former Speaker Steele said in his statement, uh, the folks that are in those prisons, uh, you know, adjusting for everything else being equal, are three times more likely to die from COVID-19. So we have a, a real crisis in our correctional institutions right now. And as Neva said, it doesn't seem like we're getting a lot of traction in response to this. I mean, the I really feel like the, the burden right now has shifted to the governor's office. Uh, Speaker Steele and, and the criminal justice reform groups have put out some very common sense proposals that Neva just outlined, medical early, early release, medical parole, getting folks out of those facilities and getting them into safer situations. That makes not only them safer, but the entire state safer. The response from the governor's office, from, from Director Crow at the Department of Corrections, has just been total silence. Now, the, the radio silence right now is, is really troubling given the the crisis that we're facing in corrections. It would seem, though, when you're looking at just two facilities that are really being focused on as kind of the hot spots, that the the issue is for DOC is to really address those and and deal with the internal situations there, as opposed to this blanket uh, early release of uh, prisoners uh, that's being outline uh, that really doesn't seem to be warranted in light of, you know, at least the facts as they stand right now. 
Tulsa approves a hate crime ordinance adding LGBTQ and gender identity protections. The city council unanimously approved the measure, which goes beyond the state's hate crime statutes. Ryan, what are your thoughts on this new change? I mean, first and foremost, let's recognize what an enormous step forward this recognition of LGBTQ Oklahomans uh, is. Um, You know, Tulsa recognizing uh, people for sexual orientation and gender identity and their hate crimes protections is an enormous step forward. Uh, you know that that in and of itself is something to be celebrated. However, the response to this, uh, the way that we hold people accountable for the hate crimes that do, in fact, uh, that are in fact perpetrated on LGBTQ Oklahomans every single day, uh, the accountability the accountability measure here, I think, falls short. I mean, we're relying on a criminal justice system that we know is broken at almost every single turn and has failed to remedy so many other. Uh, ills of the state, you know, why would we think that the criminal justice system is the right way to deal with hate? Uh, Really what the Tulsa City Council missed, I think, here was an opportunity to implement some restorative justice measures. So, I mean, let's make it very clear. Assault and battery has always been a crime under Tulsa City ordinances. You know, this adds, if it was, uh, if it was perpetrated in the name of hate, uh, this adds an additional uh, element of, of criminal culpability. To me, if hate was a motivator here, this is an opportunity to use restorative justice measures that I think really address the roots of hate uh, and get to the bottom of of this real problem that we've got in our society. So uh, I think great to see the recognition. I wish that the criminal justice system weren't a part of the solution. Neva. Well, I think, first of all, I mean, when we take into account that both uh, the United States and the state of Oklahoma have laws on the books prohibiting state crimes, uh, hate crimes. And I think when when we look now at what's happened in Tulsa with a unanimous vote, which was surprising, I think, for many uh, to uh, uh, to see the fact that there was no opposition, uh, we may see a situation develop that uh, is very similar to what happened two or three years ago in Fayetteville, Arkansas, when they passed a non-discrimination ordinance. And then the Arkansas legislature came back and pass legislation that preempted cities from passing hate crimes and civil rights ordinances. And the Arkansas Supreme Court upheld that. So uh, Tulsa kind of sets the stage. It will be interesting to see uh, among lawmakers as they they see what has uh, taken place in Tulsa uh, and perhaps in the minds of some that I've already heard uh, say that the overreach uh, in this may set the stage for something uh, far beyond just this uh, single ordinance that was passed earlier this week in Tulsa. And I think Neva's right. We're going to see a legislative response out of this. Um, I think that there are two different avenues for the legislature to take. One would be what Neva said, would be to say that the state, you know, and it's interesting, you know, it used to be the party of local control, the Republican Party used to be the party of local control, and maybe they still are, but whenever there's a political hot button issue that a municipality moves forward on, uh, whether that's a, a ban on fracking, smoking uh, uh, restrictions, whatever that is, <clears throat> we see the legislature step in and say, no, we don't really believe in local control in this instance. So they may do that. The other thing that the legislature could do would be to uh, move forward even further, which is what I was talking about earlier, and say that we're going to implement some restorative justice models and use this as an opportunity to test out restorative justice as a critical component of our criminal justice system. I, I think that when we look forward, not only in protecting LGBTQ Oklahomans, but all Oklahomans, restorative justice is really the solution that we need that makes us all safer and still 
provides accountability in a criminal justice system. So hopefully we'll see two parallel tracks competing with one another at the legislature this year, a restorative justice approach competing with that usurpation of local control by the Republican majority. Well, and I think um, uh, among the Republican majority, you have great concerns uh, with many of these cities as they move uh, in conversation on uh, some wide-ranging legislation, uh, this this whole conversation and action in a few instances of defunding the police. I mean, I think these bigger issues that are very hot-button uh, issues politically and highly charged, I think will continue to come to the forefront as we, as we move down the road as a result of uh, the ordinance passed in Tulsa this week. Maybe, maybe some of these state legislatures should run for city council. I mean, maybe that's the solution here. <laughs> <laughs> the state Supreme Court rejects Governor Stitt's request of a rehearing on its decision over his tribal gaming compacts with the Oto Missouri tribe and the Comanche Nation. And justices already ruled the deal was invalid. Neva, where does the governor go from here? I, you know, the governor says that uh, that there's still the uh, the case before the the federal courts, but I think I think that the general consensus seems to be growing, uh, not only among those. Uh, that really follow closely uh, the tribal gaming issues and other and other issues that are tribal related is that this fight is basically over. In fact, uh, I heard this week uh, one conversation where uh, someone suggested that uh, the tribal gaming fight is over. And now the next fight uh, to watch is that on managed care, where the governor seems to be uh, gearing up to take on uh, uh, the tribes and in, in this in this area. So I think I think what we have are these uh, big issues that the governor continues to be at, at, squarely at odds with uh, with the uh, uh, tribal leadership statewide. And as a result of this, I think there is the growing speculation that this will be the backdrop to uh, uh, the the beginning of the governor's reelection campaign, uh, probably next year, and how that will impact uh, impact uh, not only a re-election campaign, but re-elect uh, the legislation that will come forward in the next session. Ryan. You know, I, I think the governor needs to listen to the the late Kenny Rogers when he said, no one to walk away, no one to run. <laughs> and he just doesn't. I mean, don't go to Vegas with Governor Stitt because he just keeps doubling down on terrible bets here. Politically, legally, he has very little footing uh, to stand on at this point, And he continues to press this issue. I think that multiple times throughout his several losses in multiple courts at this point, um, with opposition from not you know Democrats, but from his own party, there have been, and from the overwhelming majority of uh, tribal governments in the state of Oklahoma and their affiliated organizations, there have been multiple points in all of those failures for him to step back, accept his defeat, and uh, hold out an olive branch and begin to try to, to remedy these, these broken relationships that don't just hurt Governor Stitt politically, but I think undermine the ability of the state to have working relationships with its tribal governments, uh, with tribal governments. And so <clears throat> that's where, you know, I think that if history tells us anything here, their governor is gonna look for another avenue to continue to challenge this. Um, when in fact, you know, everybody from Republicans to Democrats, I think uh, for the most part, want him to just stop. Uh, no one to walk away, 
no one to run, sit down at the table and, and come up with a new solution here uh, because what he's been doing just is not working. And Eva, we haven't even had the presidential election yet, but of course this could affect him. The governor's race is then just right around the corner from the general election. So could this affect him in the, in the primaries? Well, I think absolutely. There's all kinds of speculation, and we and you're right, uh, Michael. We barely, we don't even get through the <laughs> uh, the presidential election, and we're already talking about uh, two years from now. And that's just the nature of uh, politics. But uh, all of it has uh, implications, and all of it kind of piles on one on top of the other. But uh, the the whole approach, uh, the governor's, uh, as as it was described by the. Uh, uh, chairman of the Oklahoma Indian Gaming Association, when he said that uh, Governor Stitt's go-it-alone uh, approach um, is not meaningful in state-tribal relationships, I think uh, I think that is a a real takeaway for legislative leaders. I mean, when we've had uh, uh, when we've had these uh, the continued uh, uh, lawsuits uh, going before the the state supreme court, uh, now others uh, still pending, uh, and yet the governor at every turn uh, uh, losing uh, this battle. I think Ryan is right. At what point do you do you try to recalibrate the the whole the whole system and start uh, either uh, start from a at least a new point that moving forward, or at least acknowledge uh, kind of what the reality is of some of the uh, uh, of some of the uh, uh, denials that the courts uh, you know have given to the governor thus far. So it's significant. I mean, and I think uh, I think from the public standpoint, I think there is some fatigue on it. I mean, we've 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 had this uh, in the news. Uh, uh, almost uh, nonstop uh, for you know more than a year now, and I think uh, I think the public uh, would like to see some resolution on it, just because uh, the contentiousness uh, uh, serves no good purpose. Uh, at least it would appear at this point. A state Democrats are asking for the Attorney General to give his opinion on Governor Stitt giving ten million dollars in CARES Act funding to private schools. Seven members of the House Democratic Education Policy team are asking A.G. Mike Hunter if Stitt has the authority to give 1,500 families attending private schools $6,500 each of taxpayer dollars. Ryan, how do you think Hunter will rule on this? Well, yeah, I think that the the dictate from the federal government gives governors a lot of latitude with how they spend this money. You know, whether folks like that or not, I mean, that's that I think becomes a policy decision. As a matter of law, you know, I'm I have uh, I've only scratched the surface in looking at the requirements of, of the gear funding, but um, you know, I, I wouldn't put it past this attorney general. If there is something in that gear funding that would prohibit the use of this money for private schools, I think that A.G. Hunter doesn't have any problem. He's demonstrated time and again, standing up to this governor and saying, you have stepped outside the bounds of your executive authority, or you've stepped outside the bounds of your authority under the GEARS funding uh, that you have to distribute to educational facilities to benefit students in the state of Oklahoma. Um, but I, I think that as a matter of policy, you know, we look at, you know, that's that's where I think you know we're teeing up a question here for this next legislative session. Um, and that's over all of the funding of all of uh, the distribution of COVID-related money. I think that the legislature is looking at this pandemic, that this at this crisis, and they're also hopefully thinking about future crises and thinking how can we as a legislative body have more control or more input over how these funds are spent. So I think that we'll see some legislative response there, especially when you look at this gear funding. I mean, according to the Oklahoma Policy Institute, 50% of gear funding will reach less than 1% of Oklahoma of all Oklahoma students. And 
as the parent of a couple of kids that are doing virtual school through Oklahoma City Public Schools right now, I can tell you that that's going really well. It's going as well as can be expected. Um, but what this, what this virtual schooling has really uh, demonstrated is that there is a huge disparity in technology and broadband access among Oklahoma students. And in particular, whenever you get into lower income and in particular lower income rural areas, access to technology, access to broadband is a real issue. And why Governor Stitt would invest 50% of this money into such a small number of students when we have these very apparent disparities across the state, that's a real question. Now, whether that's a question of law that the AG is going to re resolve or whether that's a question of policy that the legislature deals with this upcoming session, I think that that's to be determined. Neva. Well, and it's to be determined whether the federal courts uh, ultimately have some involvement in this, because I think uh, we've already seen some federal judges in other states that have uh, made rulings uh, in, in on similar issues to this. And uh, uh, and I think there are lots of unresolved questions, as you say, Ryan. I, I, the uh, governor in July announced that uh, I believe it was 10 million of the almost 40 million dollars uh, in these uh, gear funds uh, would go to students that were attending uh, private schools. Um, and I think that uh, I think the calculation on where the dollars go, what the percentages are, uh, your your information uh, out of the Policy Institute, I think there are going to be lots of competing numbers, lots of uh, competing uh, uh, notions about uh, how the funds can be legally distributed. And it's it's the part of the larger equation of uh, the CARES Act money and these uh, literally tens of millions of dollars that are coming into every state and how they utilize them uh, to the best advantage of the citizens. So I think this is going to be something the legislature is very interested in. Obviously, uh, they've, they've wanted all along a seat at the table in terms of oversight and being, uh, uh, being in the loop on how these monies are being expended. But I think this is something that we'll be talking about for a long time to come. Congresswoman Kendra Horn is pushing for a bipartisan COVID-19 package. The Problem Solver Committee, com or, or caucus, comprised of 25 Democrats and 25 Republicans, unveiled the $1.5 trillion measure providing more direct assistance, unemployment aid, and other coronavirus relief. Ryan, what do you think of this proposal? Well, if you look at a lot of the folks in this Problem Solver Caucus, I mean, we're, we're dealing with people that are in battleground districts, and they're having to answer to their constituents about why COVID relief packages have been stalled in Congress. And um, I, I think that overall polls show that Republicans are going to bear the brunt of the fault and the blame for the lack of action over the last few months for the next round of COVID relief funding out of Congress and COVID relief uh, programs out of Congress. But that polling also shows us that uh, people are looking to their own member of Congress and asking for answers, you know, why, why is this being stalled? So I think that, you know, these members came together, they put together a, uh, you know, it's almost a, I don't wanna say it's right in the middle because Senate Republicans for the most part uh, have been the, the roadblock to, to any sort of CARES, uh, to next round of CARES Act funding. Um, they're around a $300 billion package. This package is a little north of a trillion. Uh, House Democrats are, are around 2.2 trillion. Um, so, I mean, that's the, the real roadblock here are Senate Republicans. And I think that you know, this does, though, underscore the urgency. I mean, these lawmakers, you know, they're not the ones that are stuck in Washington. These folks are in, like I said, these battleground districts like Congresswoman Horn. They are back in their districts. They're talking to folks and folks are telling them we need help. 
And uh, they, they don't want to hear answers of, well, the Senate Republicans are blocking this. They want to hear solutions. And so I don't think that this is the ultimate solution, but I do think that it serves as an important indicator of the urgency that's necessary for the constituents that these members of Congress serve. Neva. Well, I mean, first of all, it is it is a political battle that we're talking about. Forty six days from today is the general election. And we have uh, this backdrop of uh, the stalled effort uh, in Congress to get a fifth relief bill. Four have already taken place. Now we're talking about a fifth and we're talking about the price tag. That is the sticking point. I mean, the politics of it is the that Nancy Pelosi and House leadership won a $3 trillion package. Uh, Republicans have balked at that. The White House has balked at that, said we must have something uh, th- that is uh, less than that, but accomplishes the purposes, serves the needs that are uh, at the forefront being discussed. We have this package now coming from this bipartisan uh, proposal that uh, Congresswoman Horn is a part of, saying that basically 50% of the three trillion, let's let's go with 1.5 trillion, still an exorbitant number in terms of looking at uh, what is realistic realistic to get passed. And so we've got the political football being kicked back and forth, and and we're seeing uh, no no real. Uh, meaningful conversation in terms of trying to get a compromise. And so I think this, I think as Ryan says, this is a great uh, package and a tool for these folks uh, that the 25 uh, uh, Democrats and 25 Republicans going back into their district and being able to say, I'm part of this bipartisan effort to try to get some results. But the reality is they are not the players that are in a position to be able to uh, kind of move this whole effort forward and get any resolution. And I don't think we'll see resolution in the next 46 days. I think we'll see what happens after um, the presidential election. We'll see what happens in the makeup of the Congress. But the bottom line is, um, in terms of CD5 and the race uh, at hand, I think what we have is what we talked about last week, and I think we'll talk about every week until the election, is an absolute dead heat race uh, that's going to go down to the wire. Uh, and I think that uh, it's going to be fascinating to see what uh, what really are the turning points. And, and we have some interesting things coming up, as we always do with the debates and mm-hmm. other things, which tend to pique a little curiosity and interest among the voters. So um, I'm sure we'll have uh, ample opportunity to talk about that in the very near future. And Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.